So uh, today, uh, we're going to go ahead and I, I think we can start diving in. Uh, I'm going to be uh, jump, jumping in and out. I don't usually join a lot of these review sessions or run them. But uh, because we're sort of continuing the last few paragraphs, I wanted to join just to the beginning before I run off to actually do work because I have work waiting for me. Um, I just wanted to say uh, I hope everyone's doing well in these wonderfully trying times. We have changed a bit of the settings on the server to uh, keep it more of a safe, contained space. Uh, so we thank all of you for joining, as always. And please uh, be involved more. But I think, Jack, can't you, do you guys feel like uh, running this session? Sure. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just mute up, and I will be in and out. Thank you guys uh, so much. Hey, uh, do yeah. you remember where we stopped? That was one thing. Yes, and let me get my book in two seconds. I believe it was page 104 where it says, Oedipus depends on this sort of nationalistic, religious, racist sentiment. So would anyone like to say anything before we start reading? I think the main, I think the main idea is to, to read what we did not read yesterday, the rest of the uh, section, and then, to, and then discuss the whole, the whole of the section. All right, sorry, I am back now. And I think we left on hence the goal of schizoanalysis. Is that correct? Uh, was it, wasn't it, Oedipus depends on this sort of nationalistic religious Yes, reason. it was. Yes, it was. It was. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and read the first uh, paragraph. I've got a few moments. Uh, all right. Oedipus depends on this sort of nationalistic, religious, racist sentiment, and not the reverse. It is not the father who is projected onto the boss, but the boss who is applied to the father, either in order to tell you, you will not surpass your father, or you will surpass him to find our forefathers. Lacan has demonstrated in a profound way the link between Oedipus and segregation. Not, however, in the sense where segregation would be the consequence of Oedipus. Subjacent to the fraternity of the brothers once the father is dead. On the contrary, the segregative use of the precondition, the segregative use is a precondition of Oedipus to the extent that the social field is not reduced to the familial tie except by presupposing an enormous archaism, an incarnation of the race in person or in spirit. Yes, I am one of you. Hmm. Uh, wow, yeah, maybe I should have had a lot more coffee before we started this. <laughs> Um, so the, I want to just quickly chat because I, when I was rereading this, uh, sort of after our chat yesterday and going through this, uh, the line, it is not the father who is projected onto the boss, but the boss who is applied to the father. It feels, uh, I, I would love to discuss this little moment, uh, either to tell us you will not surpass the father or you will surpass him to find your forefathers. Um, does this mean that it's not so much that we're talking about the projection, uh, but but actually almost an after-the-fact thing that exists for the subject? Kind of seems so. It, 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 they they discussed the idea of application earlier. Yes, as I remember. But this is a new concept to me uh, that I think they're developing here. All right. Had a I closed it because of work has been fun today. Um, 
I'll, I'll leave it open I, if anyone wants to jump in. Uh, um. Yeah, I think that I think Ken's right. This is about how Oedipus is applied and um, what kind of the what Oedipus depends on to be applied, right? And mm -hmm. so, I, I I think it's pretty interesting that um, you're not um, you're not projecting the father onto the boss. You're applying the boss to the father. Right, which is a way of getting into a disjunctive synthesis, it seems. So, uh, Varun, I know in your notes you had, uh, for Lacan, the segregative use of the conjunctive synthesis is a precondition for Oedipus. Yeah, I'm about I'm that, well, I'm yeah, asking yeah. Matt a bit, because, um, so I think I'm going to have to review my Lacan for this part. Um, uh, for for uh, One of the things that they're going to say in this chapter is that this idea of uh, segregations and like why almost, uh, you know, I think one way to think about it is this sport, sport, sport group rivalries, right? It almost seems like something so ridiculous, but it's taken very seriously. I'm sure Matt would know that in the UK and stuff. But um, like one, 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 one to think about that. One thing, one of the ways that they're actually making the argument that these divides are happening from like poor uses of the of this third of this uh, third synthesis. I kind of copied and pasted that uh, part from Lacan because that was uh, something that Zizek had, and so I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to 100% say uh, stand with that. I was wondering if somebody else was more familiar with Lacan could help us with that. Yeah, well, I haven't. I haven't run into the term segregation in Lacan. So. Uh... The closest I came, because I spent a little bit of time uh, Googling on this, um, is uh, uh, Lacan.com has a bunch of articles on the sort of normative cases of segregation inside of society, uh, mostly focused around uh, what they're calling the hypermodern family, uh, which is, of course, related to the Oedipal Triangle. Uh, the family as society's basic institution is a strong value in this country. Still, we have to pay attention to the dislocation of this ideal in contemporary society. Divorce, single parents, composite families, broken families, family violence, and so on. The ideal of the family has its share of failures. But on the other hand, the very dislocation of the ideals of the traditional family that may also give way to innovative solutions that modern psychoanalysis has to take into account. Moreover, tendencies that are either progressive or reactionary contribute to focusing the evolution of society around various phenomena of segregation. Lacanian psychoanalysis stands strongly against any form of the segregative process. So closest I found to uh, anyone directly <laughs> correlating them in uh, Lacan and segregation, not uh, apparently a large subject he actually, that I'm able to find. So is segregation the normal meaning of the term, or is this a special technique? Well, and I'd also wonder if this segregation is the correct French translation, because again, we get into something that is a very complex term specifically. So. Uh, I, I think it's the, um, if this helps, though, the segregation seems to be, the right, the, the segregation seems to be what allows Oedipus to be had, which is to say you will not surpass your father, or you will surpass him to find your forefathers. And so that seems to be important because that in and of itself is a condition for Oedipus to be, um, to be applied in all that, where they write later on, uh, the segregative use is a precondition of Oedipus 
to the extent that the social field is not reduced to the familial tie, except by presupposing an enormous archaism, an incarnation of the race in person or in spirit. Yes, I am one of you. Right, so that's the difference between uh, right, the father and the forefathers, um, which, which uh, has the boss applied to them. Well, and that, that then flows. Uh, on the contrary, the segregative use of the segregative use is a precondition of Oedipus. To the extent that social field is not reduced to the familial tie, except by presupposing an enormous archaism, uh, uh, old uh, old way of thinking, uh, an incarnation of the race in person or in spirit. Uh, they're basically saying that uh, in order, basically, at the first thing we do is we assume that there is a father. At that point, we become segregative. It's sort of predetermined by even using Oedipus inside of these situations. Is that fair? I, I thought the segregative uh, referred to the brand, band of brothers who displaced the father. Hmm. Yeah, I but think I'm not, not sure. I think you're you're both onto it. It's the forefathers. It's the band of brothers in the sense of their th them being so archaic they've endured, right? And so this is the way the um, the choice is going to be made, right? Uh, you you can't go beyond your father or. You must go beyond your father to your forefathers, which is to get at right either a blockage through the father, or um, some sort of um, enduring race, right? So like, um, there's a lot of examples I could use to to illustrate that, but perhaps the easy one is like the Aryan race, right? Well, and and it, we we talked about it before. Um, the the concept of segregation in Lacan, I can't find directly related to Oedipus. That's the I think the challenge. But uh, the idea of segregation in, in Lacan is it's always linked to power struggle, history, uh, capitalist discourse, and science. Uh, Lacan's quote: "It should be said there is no need for ideology for racism to be constituted. All that is needed is a surplus jouissance that is recognized as such." Uh, Lacan states, when he attempts to show that it is precisely the K-Con of his own being that the man-man tries to get at, at in the object he strikes. Uh, the, the nature of sort of the racism or the dislike is that ex, is the excess puissance, the uh, madman trying to get at the object he strikes, the we hate the thing so much we want it, we want it so much we hate it kind of uh, sort of setup. Um, uh, coming back to a young man during a session in which he was mentioning again his father saying those guys should all be killed. Uh, they were uh, men dressed as women on the side of the road, uh, uh, streetwalk, prostitutes uh, in this, this in this description. Uh, the analyst asked him to describe the complete scene once more. After listening to it, the analyst said, so the taxi driver had to explain to your father that those people in the street were not women. And the patient answered exactly. After a silence, he started laughing and added, Oh my God, my father thought they were girls. He liked them. Um, discovering his father's brutal statement was the effect of an encounter of his own opaque and strange results, and that it was his own horror that drove his irrational reaction of hate of the other brought the patient relief in the memory. Uh, all of this feels applicable because, again, we're talking uh, from the place of the Son to the Father, the Oedipal Triangle feels uh, like we're starting to wrap around the right point. I still can't find anything directly related to Oedipus and this, though. 
I know excitement. Uh, relax, everyone. Don't get too excited. <laughs> yeah, and if I'm not understanding I'm myself up to speed on, on where we are right now, that's all. Good. Um, I think actually we can jump in because uh, the next line literally comes from Lacan that it's not a question of ideology. That's actually, uh, uh, Lacan says that about segregation in Ekrit's, uh some of his talks. Uh, so I'm just going to I'm going to read the next paragraph and then we'll move to discuss a little bit more. Uh, it is not a question of ideology. There is an unconscious libidinal investment of the social field that coexists, but does not necessarily coincide with the pre-conscious investments or with what the pre-conscious investments ought to be. That is why when subjects, individuals or groups act manifestly counter to their class interests, when they rally to the interests and ideals of a class that their own objective situation should lead them to combat, it is not enough to say, they were fooled, the masses have been fooled. It is not an ideological problem, a problem of failing to recognize or of being subject to an illusion. It is a problem of desire and desire is part of the infrastructure. Pre-conscious investments are made, or should be made, according to the interests of the opposing classes. But unconscious investments are made according to positions of desire and uses of synthesis, very different from the interests of the subject, individual, or collective who desires. Hmm. So that actually helps a lot uh, for me to clarify the previous statement. Because, we're, again, we're, we're talking about the way things ought to be, uh, the, the way that we... The, the history of things falls back on everything and subsumes it. Say Rabat Sur, right? It also goes back to what we said, um, I think it was in the very, the very first chapter, um, first section of the first chapter, where they talk about um, the same idea that they, they, they reference uh, Reich, don't they? Um, that the real question isn't why were the masses fooled into wanting fascism? The question is why did they want fascism? Right, um, <clears throat> because in, in in ideology, there's a kind of um, uh, there's an element of misrecognition there, right? There has to be. That's but, but on some level, that's how ideology ideology as a as a concept works. Um, but I guess what Deleuze and Guattari are saying against ideology, and they they, they don't really uh, they don't think the concept of ideology is really useful at all. There, um, desire is the question is why they desired what they desired. Um, and to understand the way in which the social field um, determines, I guess, the, the individual psyche, and which which can then sort of um, have its own influence back on the social field as well. So this seems like uh, the you know what's in the book. What's the matter with Kansas? Actually, that's a really appropriate one to bring up for sure. Uh, if anyone's not familiar. What's the Matter with Kansas is a wonderful book about sort of the story of what was once this, uh, I don't want to say lefty, but a very collective-based farming state that very hard went far-right religious uh, and completely the other direction from where it had been almost 50 years before. And it's a sort of a study into what caused the people to desire this extreme austerity, and they went to extremes. Uh, the, the whole state essentially fell apart and is still falling apart due to the actions of uh, the previous governor there and a few of the mayors. 
Um, it's, it, I, I think that would apply, Kent, because we're talking again here about not necessarily the ideological, uh, you know, un underlying things that oh, it's uh, they 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 desire this because they want power. They desire this because they believe it's right. They desire it because of an illusion because they've been tricked. Uh, right now, we could look very easily at. Uh, we could look very easily at uh, the poor white rednecks who actually came out as counter-protesters against Black Lives Matter. I think that would be an appropriate thing because ultimately they should have some level of class consciousness. The material desires that Black Lives Matter are going after are very much the kind of thing that would actually raise sort of all boats, especially that of poor whites. Uh, yet somehow they're fighting against it. And the refrain from the media uh, at almost every turn is either they've been fooled, uh, they believe in some higher power, they've, they've been tricked into it, uh, when in reality, um, and as I've talked about before, um, they actually desire to be dominated. They desire fascism. They, they desire that control over them. Um, that's why I also posted this class. Uh, uh, Thea Wellett, uh, called Male Fantasies, Volumes 1 and 2. Um, it's a study of the uh, fascists uh, before they took over in Germany. Uh, they, there were uh, kind of like uh, novels written by proto-fascists, and so it it studies the desire that that is uh, represented in those books. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think what's important is to look at the distinction they're making there too, right? Pre-conscious investments are made, or should be made, according to the interest of the opposing classes. So there is some pre-conscious level of libidinal investment going on. Uh, however, they write, but unconscious investments are made according to the positions of desire and uses of syntheses, very different from the interests of the subject, individual, or collective who desires. So you, you have uh, two things going on, right? You have the pre-conscious investments, but you also have uh, a seemingly contrary uh, unconscious investment going on, which I think brings us back to what Matt was saying too, where it's, um, Right, it's not that you're applying the father to the boss, it's that you're applying the boss to the father. So as to tell someone, you will not pass, or if you will, you will go into the realm of the forefathers. Yeah, I don't know, it's really interesting. I think that this thing of the desires part of the infrastructure, part of that, I think, is the fact that if you have a particular role, then you kind of desire what you think the role should desire. And, uh, and I think that's the idea of the application of the boss to the father. When the father becomes a boss, then there are certain, there are certain things that, that, that then the father wants as a boss. <clears throat> and this is, <clears throat> this is the idea of roles in society. And, uh, and Alfred, uh, Schutz um, created a kind of social phenomenology all about this uh, this phenomenon. I mean, I mean, so would you describe it as a sort of reciprocal determinism? Yeah, maybe. 
I mean, I, I, I think it, I think it is interesting that if you take on a role, it's kind of we have in our society, um, you know, certain images of what what different roles do. But when you're suddenly in a role, then suddenly you have to think about things from the point of view of that role. Uh, and so then your response to things change based on that role. So, for instance, new father, you know, a lot of times they will change what they think of things once they realize that they're going to have children. I also, I wouldn't say that it's deterministic because Deleuze and Qatari do think that all of this can and should change. Um, so that, that, that's probably one important thing. Um, but one thing I was going to say, and this is the only time I, uh, this episode I will mention Altizer. <laughs> the, just the only thing I was, it was, it was context here is that this was written in a period where um, a lot of different left-wing thinkers were um, re-engaging with the concept of ideology and trying to uh, rethink it and understand it in new ways. Um, Gramsci uh, was also and Andaltuser um, and so on, you know, big, big influences in this. Um, and it's been going on ever since, you know, how, do, how does ideology really work? It isn't, it, it clearly can't just be a kind of simple mismatch between objective class interests and, you know, your subjective um, uh, views and things. Um, so this is one of those engagements. It's not, it's not, it's not a straightforward critique of Marxism in that sense. Um, it's more of a rethinking of how we understand the problem which ideology as a concept was invented to try and explain. Does that make sense? <laughs> um, it's rethinking the nature of how we answer the same problem, basically. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Yeah, I think that's right. And then that leads us into like, it's not just the roles, right? It's the infrastructure with the roles. So as to say that you can take the role of boss and apply it to the father, so as to create the, um, so as to allow for the, um, to, so as to allow for an Oedipal, uh, shall we say, situation, an Oedipal interpretation. Uh, one thing that ought to be uh, kind of uh, mentioned is that, like, when I say role, and this is the problem with Alfred Schutz, you know, he, He's seeing roles as ideal types, but uh, another, but the archetypal way of looking at it is, you know, uh, the boss refers to all possible bosses, all the bosses that have actually existed, and so, and so, you know, it's multifarious when it's a complex or an archetype uh, in Jungian terms. Uh, it's not uh, idealized behavior. Yeah, and with that, um, so Brooks has stepped out to go back to work. So I think it's probably best we move on to the next paragraph and keep the, uh, the discussion moving. Uh, would anyone like actually, to? Actually, just just before we do, just actually, I mean, if you want, I can I can read out. I can read out a point as well. Actually, if you want. Um, <clears throat> sorry, my, my last point I was going to make was um, this line. It is a problem of desire, and desire is part of the infrastructure. I read that as an implicit critique of. Um, a certain 
approach to ideology, which is what they're kind of discussing in this paragraph, right? Because um, one way of looking at it would be, but why do people desire fascism? You know, let's say, let's say they do, right? Um, and you know, you, you get to a stage where you say they do actually really want it, and then the question is why. One way of explaining that would be, ah, well, it's because of um, either the economic base or the political, legal, cultural superstructure, um, which determines these uh, these views, right? Um, I think well, the, the point of them is that you can't say the reason they desire it is because of this infrastructure, because as they say, desire is already part of it. Right, so it, it, it ends up being circular as an explanation. Um, so yeah, that, that's the only thing I was just going to say. Um, I can read the next paragraph, or unless you want to say something else. Yeah, I'll just mention this quick point. I mean, in the Claire Barnet interviews, uh, there's this uh, scene where uh, she asks Deleuze, could you like define what were you, what were you and Guattari trying to do in that book very simply? Since, you know, it was kind of, it, it became almost like a meme in France when it first came out. But uh, you said that we understand fascism as 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 lack almost and so essentially that it, it's that sense that you know it's so somebody else commands you to want something and all those lacks are created because the flows of desire are organized differently so that's the, that's the, at least that's what i read it as yeah I, th I agree with you yeah all right so these investments of an unconscious nature can ensure the general submission to a dominant class by making cuts and segregations pass over into a social field insofar as it is it is effectively invested by desire and no longer by interests a form of social production and reproduction along with its economic and financial mechanisms its political formations and so on can be desired as such in whole or in part independently of the interests of the desiring subject. It was not by means of a, met of a metaphor, even a paternal metaphor, that Hitler was able to sexually arouse the fascists. It is not by means of a metaphor that a banking or stock market transaction, a claim, a coupon, a credit, is able to arouse people who are not necessarily bankers. And what about the effects of money that grows, money that produces more money? There are socio-economic complexes that are also veritable complexes of the unconscious and that communicate a voluptuous wave from the top to the bottom of the hierarchy, the military-industrial complex. And ideology, Oedipus and the phallus have nothing to do with this because they depend on it rather than being its impetus. For it's a matter of flows of stocks, of breaks in and fluctuations of flows. Desire is present wherever, wherever something flows and runs, carry along, carrying along with it in, interested subjects, but also drunken or slumbering subjects towards lethal destinations. Um, I think this is them pretty explicitly saying here that social production, you know, organizes desire in its specific manner, or disorganizes desire in its specific manner, does both of that, to essentially, you know, create lack or excess. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just trying to sort of pass, pass this in my own head. Um, someone correct me if I'm wrong. Would it be fair to say that um, desire is, um, in some sense, basic? I mean, they, earlier they say that it, it literally constitutes the real, right? It, it, it's basic in that sense, but on the other hand, it's always socially um, managed, coordinated, um, redirected. Would that be fair? Could you, could you uh, define what you mean by basic? 
Um, fundamental, um, you know, you, you, there can't be a person who hasn't got, you know, desire. Um, so in that sense, you know. You know, this was like a debate me and Jack of Hearts were having actually a couple, like, weeks ago, where, right. you know, it's almost like, to some extent, uh, desire for them isn't a first principle, right? Because if they say desire occurs before subjectivity, and uh, uh, really, yeah. desire is all the... It's it's almost like their magical energy that gives life everything, yeah. and so I was I, the first time I read that I was not so sure about that. Like I was kind of a bit, uh, I was like, huh, that seems kind of odd, right? For someone who talks about rhizomes, suddenly just be like, it's just desire at the very bottom of everything. But I, it, it it almost works in a similar manner to Nietzsche's will to power. I think that's an easier way to think yeah. about it. And yeah, but so that's how that's how I think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's uh, it's 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 happening. It's 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 literally everywhere, as we said on the first page. Yeah. So it's 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 uh, it's the very transcendental condition for the possibility of life. Yeah. So in that sense, it's kind of kind of fundamental or basic, um, in, ontologically basic, I suppose you could say, right? Um, but it is always socially managed, socially coordinated. Um, given a certain character or pushed in certain directions or away from other directions. Um, yeah, um, I think it's always been, it's always investing, right? Desire is always investing, meaning that's always going everywhere. So yeah. it's always going to be connected. I mean, connection is one of their principles. If it's always going to be connected, of course, it's going to reach the social field somehow. And then, yeah, that's how, that's how the socius gets created. But then the socius works against you also. Yeah, I mean, even you know, the next chapter when they describe sort of three different sort of um, formations, sort of social formations, they um, even in a sort of the what they call the quote unquote primitive sort of you know savage society, what they call it, um, even then there's still a kind of social organization of of the flows of desire, even there. Yeah, and at some level, I see this as kind of what we would have called ideology as being something. Uh, now called like almost conscious versus unconscious investment or pre-conscious investment. So I, I suppose ideology would probably be closer to pre-conscious investment. But that seems you, to be something. Sorry, would you be able to just like, clarify for me as someone who's I've got a little bit of Freud. This was something I, I, I'm not so clear on. The difference between the unconscious and the pre-conscious. Um, I, I think so. It's it's not that big of a difference, really. But it's it's. it's I don't think he really. He, he changes his his like the topological model, right? He changes it a lot over time. But uh, I don't I don't know the way to describe it. it, it it's almost like the preconsciousness of less unconscious unconscious. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I, I think the iceberg model is an easy way to think about it, right? You go deeper and deeper. Right. And I think it's the, the more you, I think it might be the more you're repressed, the more, like the, the more, the more repressed something is, the deeper it goes in. Um, I, I just like to mention that, um, uh, you know, Daniel Smith, he has this article in which he, uh, describes how, uh, what Deleuze and Guattari are doing is applying Keynesian economics to, Freudianism and Marxism with these stocks and flows, 
Yeah, that's that's an excellent article. I think uh, I've read that before. It's, it's he's he's really, uh, I mean, he's got a real knack for explaining things like in, in super complicated things like super easily. I, I think I posted a link to the Dan Smith's essays on Deleuze, but I highly recommend that, especially for chapter three when we talk about flows. And, and am I correct in saying that um, what's happening is unconscious investments, the, the three syntheses in that parallel the social um, dimension, parallel with the socius, so as to allow for what would otherwise be like, at a personal level, a, a psychological complex, but more so a socioeconomic complex, which is how you get the kind of, I don't want to call an apparatus, but the kind of, um, the ways that people like Hitler or the people who sell stats are able to tap into desire. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the key here is that it's uh, desiring production and uh, so, uh, I'll, I'll give you the link for that in a minute. Let me just, but so I think the key here is that uh, desiring production is, uh, despite the fact like the nuclear family, what it does is it, it re regulate, uh, regulates uh, desiring production into reproduction and uh, general production under capitalism as a separate entity altogether. And for them, desiring production and uh, and so, a social production is the same thing, but they differ in regimes. I think that that part about deferring in regimes is the key word there. Where do you see regime? Uh, it was a while back, actually. It was not, it was it was on the chapter one. Uh, you know, chapter one, the section on a materialist psychiatry. Oh, yeah. You know, the the idea that I had was that. Um, uh, it's kind of like an upside-down model in some sense. You know, ha having desire as being a first principle. Because, uh, you know, we normally recognize desire as being within some social, you know, macro-social situation. And, and what they're doing is they're saying, no, though, there's these... Uh, there's this basic level of, of desire, which is the desiring machines level. But uh, the other thing that occurred to me was that it's, you know, they, there's, this say, there's this saying, follow the money. You know, when you're investigating what's really going on when there's corruption and so forth, it's, it's almost as if their point of view is follow the desire. Yeah. And I think what I think what they're going to say is that the, what what's so weird and awful about fascism is that it's that's that's the case in which desire comes to desire its own oppression, right? Um, there's something different there than what you find in other social formations, I suppose, um, because in in the three kinds of societies they outline in the next chapter, um, desire doesn't desire its own oppression, but oppression is kind of part and parcel um, in, in different ways of how desire produces and um, is deprived of, of, of its product. Um, but I suppose that, that's what they think is so awful about fascism, is is that people become, uh, yeah, the people desire their own, the repression of their own desire, basically, and enjoy it. And to, to wrap that this up, uh, could we focus on those last two sentences, which read, and ideology, Oedipus, and the phallus have nothing to do with this. 
because they depend on it rather than being tempestuous. For it is a matter of flows, of stocks, of breaks, and in and fluctuations of flows. Desire is present wherever something flows and runs. Carry along with it interested subjects, but also drunken or slumbering subjects toward lethal destinations. Uh, what do you guys make of that? So for me, this is um, a reiteration of the, uh, them basically agreeing with Reich again. So um, the, the sort of the, the figures or um, yeah, the figures of, of psychoanalysis essentially are dependent upon the, uh, the, the, the primacy of the socius, basically, of the social field. Um, it, it, it's the way in which capitalism as a, as a form of, of, uh, of society, um, sorry, I'm losing train of thought there. It, <laughs> capitalism as a sort of form of managing desire of, um, uh, of, of, of society in general, that's primary. And after that, um, that's, that's what produces basically Oedipus. Um, Oedipus is basically impossible um, for Tullius and Guattari before capitalism. It's kind of this haunting um, figure where some of the possibilities were there, but never all of them, never all of them all at once. Um, they also think capitalism is kind of this uh, uh, ghost from the future, kind of haunting all forms of previous society, the thing which they find every society tries to ward off in advance. Um, it gets very weird and very interesting, but um, yes, yeah, so I think to go back to it, this is basically just a reiteration that point. But um, uh, the social, the capitalist social field produces um, Oedipus, basically. Well, I mean, Nick Land was was drawing on a little bit of Deleuze and Guattari, and, and Mark Fisher says the same thing here, and, and so does Deleuze, so do Deleuze and Guattari. You can read it. Um, uh, they they openly write in chapter three about how um, capitalism is weird, like. Like a ghost, it, I don't know, I'm using my, my own imagery there, but it's something like that, right? Like a this phantom they're trying to avoid. It's it's it, yeah, it's 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 alive and it's it's. It, I mean, there's there's a an anti there's an anti anthropocentrism that works really well with their poetic understanding of capital. Um, yeah, I I think uh, I, I, I so like the phallus. I, I don't think we need to go into that because uh, for Lacan the. Uh, his his rereading of the Oedipus complex has to do with the penis castration and how it uh, how it goes into symbolic register with the phallus. I mean, is that really related over here? I was so I'm not super well read in Lacan, so I wanted to know if anyone else who's better read than me could sort of help me out there. I do, I'm really I don't know enough I don't know Lacan in, in in enough detail to be able to answer that. I'm afraid. Yeah, me either. All right, you guys want to move on then? Yeah. Could someone read the next paragraph? Uh, sure, I'll go ahead. Hence the goal of schizoanalysis, to analyze the specific nature of the libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres, and thereby to show how, in the subject who desires, desire can be made to desire its own repression. That's, that's completely drawing off Reich. Uh, desire, I think I think Reich might have even actually used this word, used that word before. Desire desires its its, its own repression. All, 
when's the role of this death instinct in the circuit connecting desire to the social sphere? All this, all this happens not in ideology, but well beneath it, an unconscious investment of a fascism or a reactionary type can exist alongside a conscious revolutionary investment. Inversely, it can happen rarely that a revolutionary investment on the level of desire coexists with a reactionary investment conforming to the conscious interest. In any case, conscious and unconscious investments are not of the same type, even when they coincide or are superimposed on each other. We define the reactionary unconscious investment as the investment that conforms to the interest of the dominant class but operates on its own, own account, according to the terms of desire, through the segregative use of the conjunctive synthesis from which Oedipus is derived. I am of the superior race. The revolutionary unconscious investment is such that desire, still in its own mode, cuts across the interest of the dominated exploited classes and causes flows to move that are capable of breaking apart both the segregations and their edible applications. Flows capable of hallucinating history, of reanimating the races in delirium, of setting continents ablaze. No, I am not your kind. I am the outsider and deterritorialized. I am of a race inferior for all eternity. I am a beast. I am a Negro. The way they the way they link up the idea of the death instinct is, is interesting, though, isn't it? Um, because they do set up this parallel between the the individual and the, and the social field. Um, for, like, for them, like it, it's all the same thing in a way, but there's two different regimes, right? That's what that's why they put it. Um, there's, I think there's, there's a lot of emphasis put here on, on contradictions and how they're understanding contradictions, I think. And I think that, that that's not even just a uh, theme through Deleuze and Guattara, that's a theme through like cybernetics as a whole. But uh, I, I think one part of like, you know, when Freud first came up with the, with the Thanatos, it almost seems so contradictory, like, why would anyone desire death itself? But uh, I think what they're alluding to here is that, uh, you know, th desire has that contradictory element to it where it can be uh, taken and flowed in different ways because it's so it's it's i think the best word to describe it is polymorphous yeah and I, and i think if we take the word desire as productive we needn't assume that desire is necessarily creative it can be destructive as well right and that's the production of destruction so yeah yeah but also this is one of his this one this one bit here, you know, the, the, those two long sentences about um, the reactionary and revolutionary unconscious, where you see that there is really that's still a quite strong um, influence of Marxism um, still going on here with with, with Deleuze and Guattari. Um, you know, it, it's it's cashed out in a really different language, um, I suppose, but um, they're still going to maintain the importance of thinking about. Um, interests and classes and domination a revolution things like this like that, that's still really a big part of what they're doing here um they're just sort of using a different framework for thinking about it i suppose yeah and i think another thing when they talk about the superior race and the inferior race i think that's uh from their understanding of when the conjunctive synthesis is sort of in its uh, paralytic state or in its misuse uh, by construed by psychoanalysis or the nuclear family or uh, a weaker form of social production. Um, things like, uh, would it be correct to say things like racism is that derived from that? 
do you mind just re- just sort of saying that again for me? Yeah, so I mean, uh, they talk about a super- I am of the superior race, uh, this idea of class divide. And I'm not talking about class divide in the Marxist sense, but like, uh, you know, us and them, the, the divide of uh, one group over the other. I mean, are they, uh, yeah. I'm not sure if this is correct, are they saying that it's when it is the, the third synthesis is used incorrectly, the synthesis of subjectivity, when it's construed incorrectly by, you know, maybe a weaker form of social production, not understanding where the flow, the best way to manage the flows. Is that when something like racism comes from or something? That sounds right to me. Um, and they also, and this is good, they, they also therefore wouldn't be committed to saying that you know, capitalism is the thing responsible for racism, right? Which is kind of a reductionist, quite reductionist standpoint, because um, every form of social social order has had these sort of uh, underlying misuses of the um, of the synthesis of the unconscious, right? They all make systematically illegitimate use of it. It's just for the specific form that it takes under capitalism is um, Oedipus. Another way of thinking about this is <clears throat> in terms of nihilism, that these are nihilistic opposites. And uh, the thing about nihilism is that uh, once you recognize the nihilistic thing, then you, uh, you're, you lose meaning in the world. So like the classic example is that the, uh, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, basically they're all... Uh, working for the corporations, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, working with the lobbyists. And, uh, and so when you realize that there's not much difference between them ultimately, then if you were a Democrat or you were a Republican and you were fully engaged in the conflict between those two, then, then when you become disillusioned, you lose meaning uh, in your life and experience anomie. Uh, and so one way to think about this is in terms of these are nihilistic opposites that actually, in some sense, are uh, to, to, you know, a dualism that is two sides of the same coin. And, and by the way, and by the way, you see this in the Oedipus trilogy, where Oedipus is a king. Uh, he becomes a pharmacon as a, as a, uh, uh, when he's outcast from his city, self-imposed, and um, and then uh, in Oedipus at Colonus, he becomes the initiator of Theseus's uh, sons to then become kings themselves. So the pharmacon, the king becomes pharmacon, and the pharmacon initiates king. Right. Okay. I I was just. I was just reading this again, um, and I'm wondering if we can interpret this sentence in, a, in an actually slightly more ambiguous way than maybe maybe we did at first, or I did. When they say, you know, through the segregative use of a conjunctive synthesis from which Oedipus is derived, I am of a superior race. I don't know if we're meant to necessarily think of that in sort of racialized or ethnic terms exclusively. Because presumably part of what we're what we're talking about is the various ways that um, classes of different kinds form based on this illegitimate use, right? One of them will absolutely be 
um, race. Um, the other one, you know, will be class, about the gender and so on. Um, there's always different kinds, but presumably one way of reading this is to say that what's specific about the reactionary form of unconscious investment is that it, it makes this kind of um, segregated use and then privileges one over the other. I am of a superior race slash class slash gender, whatever, right? And that's possibly why in the next bit, what's specific to the revolutionary unconscious is that it cuts across the, invest the interest of the dominated exploited classes and, yeah, and causes flows to move that are capable of breaking apart both the segregations and their edible applications. Flow is capable of hallucinating history, of reanimating the racist and delirium, of setting continents ablaze. So maybe, maybe that's why we're reading it. I don't know, I could be going completely off track there, but maybe it, when we read, you know, that line there, think maybe maybe we, should, we could think about it in less, you know, not, not specifically sort of racialized terms, or that that would be one of them, but that um, what's, what's reactionary is specifically that form of segregative use, and what's specifically revolutionary is the way in which it, cut, it sort of cuts across them and destabilizes these distinctions and, um, and privileges and things. Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree with you. Um, the one thing I would um, tack on there is that it's also that um, that, that latter, that re um, revolutionary uh, unconscious investment uh, can coexist with the reactionary unconscious investment, which is um, kind of like what Ruin was saying. It looks like a contradiction, but it, I think it's more just the paradoxical nature that comes with desire, right? like we talked about with desire, desiring its own repression, or even desiring its own ending. Um, but I would also say like that, what, what Matt was describing too, brings us back to the previous paragraph of, um, right, you will either, it's not that you apply your father to the boss, it's that you apply the boss to the father in order to tell people you will not surpass your father or you will surpass him to find our forefathers. It, it, Matt's right. It's not just race. It's uh, or, or even class. It's something that you're presuming to be archaic, and this sort of ideal, nostalgic, lost thing that you're actually connected with. Right? We see this very often in movies where um, there's this sort of lost race that we're all still connected with, and we just gotta find the race. And then you, the right. That's kind of the un um, the um, reactionary investment. But I think the revolutionary investment would be the one that also comes with like the disorientation of it all, which is to say that you could be experiencing both of these simultaneously. You know, uh, I think an example to think about is when the British took over India. Um, you know, they were they were the you know the ones dominating, and you know they saw all the Indians as children. And um, you know they were uh, had their manifest destiny to uh, civilize them, uh, and so forth. But uh, but also you know within that you got um, people going native. In other words, recognize sometimes recognizing that the Hinduism was a superior culture. And uh, but but the most interesting part is the fact that they discovered Sanskrit was a earlier Indo-European language. And so there was a kinship with the Brahmanism. But not only that, but they thought, because they found all these Buddhist temples that in ruins, 
they thought Buddhism was the oldest religion uh, among the Hindus. And so they started studying Buddhism to try to find the oldest Indo-European uh, uh, religion to um, identify with. And so there was this interesting thing where they, they actually thought that the Indians were them in some back in the past. Yeah, and I think that's effectively what they're getting at is this sort of like, not necessarily a contradiction where things stop, but that sort of paradoxical nature of, yeah, this is who we are. And it's so like, right, we're either going to repress ourselves and not go beyond the father, or we're going to go beyond it to the land of our forefathers, right? That's kind of the game of it, as opposed to um, this is sort of the socioeconomic complex that they're, they're talking about that Oedipus relies on, as opposed to, um, as opposed to making possible. Uh, with that, though, are there any final thoughts before we move on to what I think is the last paragraph of the section? If not, would anyone care to read? I would volunteer, but my Wi-Fi went out five minutes ago, so. <laughs> I, can, I can do it if you want. Do it. Cool. So we've just read, um, uh, yeah. Flows, flows capable of hallucinating history, of reanimating race and delirium, of setting contents ablaze. Yeah. So, there again, it is a question of an intense potential for investment and counterinvestment in, in the unconscious. Oedipus disintegrates because its very conditions have disintegrated. The nomadic and polyvocal use of the conjunctive synthesis is in opposition to the segregative and biunivocal use. Delirium has something like two poles, racist and racial paranoiac, segregative, and schizonomadic. And between the two, ever so many subtle, uncertain shiftings where the unconscious itself oscillates between its reactionary charge and its revolutionary potential. Even Schreiber finds himself to be the great Mongol when he breaks through the area of segregation. Whence the ambiguity in the texts of the great authors, when they develop the theme of races, as rich an ambiguity as destiny itself. Here, schizoanalysis must unravel the thread. For reading a text is never a scholarly exercise in search of what is signified. It's still less a highly textual exercise in search of a signifier. Rather, it is productive use of a literary machine, a montage of desiring machines, a schizoid, schizoid exercise that extracts from the text a re its revolutionary force. The exclamation, so it's, or the meditation of uh, editor on race, is an essential relationship with madness. I think this chapter should have, I mean, this section, I think it should have opened with that paragraph, because I think that paragraph is, is a brilliant summary. Should open the damn book with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, and it even talks about, I don't know if you guys have read A Thousand Plateaus, but A Thousand Plateaus also opens with this idea that, you know, writing is not about, in, I mean, reading books is not about interpretation. Reading books is about mapping. And Gattari, in his own solo practice, he uh, he talked about metamodeling. And that, I mean, the real, like, um, I, I don't want to go super into that. So, like, the real, like, uh, a quick take on meta modeling is that essentially it's 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 like uh, you have to, when you're making like a schema or you're making something for the unconscious, you have to account for the fact that it's always in genesis, it's always in flux, and it's always becoming. So 
so if you want to read like a book in an almost non-representational manner, you have to do a meta model or a cartography of it, which is, which is why I was confused though. Why was it at that part at the end? But um, I think when they're talking about the schizonomatic, I think that ties back in the three sub the three syntheses together, right? Because uh, the schizo is able to detach from almost these roles of uh, I don't want to say social conformity, but maybe it's that. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm still trying to think. Sorry, you go, go on. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I could see the schizo as um, being able to use a more revolutionary um, unconscious investment. Go ahead. Well, I'm just trying, I'm trying to figure out exactly, like, the little bit at the end about reading a text is really, really great, really interesting. Um, it's, it's a bit before then, which I'm sort of trying to um, figure out exactly what it's saying, I guess. Um, I think I think this is really about this fact, um, uh, the previous paragraph we read, a bit about the revolutionary unconscious, and I think maybe the first few sentences about about um, when he says uh, Oedipus disintegrates because its very condition have conditions have disintegrated. Is, is what he's saying there that um, what happens through the revolutionary unconscious is through the breaking up of these. Um, segregative uses of, of synthesis, um, it destabilizes the conditions through which Oedipus becomes meaningful or, you know, um, a, a figure. Um, is that the idea? That these kind of, you know, nomadic and polyvocal uses um, are in opposition, but as this revolutionary unconscious grows and develops, um, because these polyvocal nomadic uses grow, um, they just destroy the essential conditions of Oedipus. Is that what they're saying? I, I think partially, yeah. It looks like there's an oscillation for the unconscious where it goes between the racial and the race. Well, where was it? Um, yeah, the racist and the racial, which is part of the delirium. So yeah, like would, some, would someone be able to explain that one to me? <laughs> I'm just going to reread it a bit. Yeah, I think it's like, um, so schizoanalysis is trying to de-edipalize psychoanalysis, and one of the tasks of schizoanalysis is to, uh, quote, analyze the specific nature of libidinal investments in the economic and political spheres, and thereby to show how, in the subject of desires, desire can be made to desire its own repression. Uh, right. So... In some ways, I think that's part of what the racist is, is it's that disjunctive, or not that disjunctive, that segregating synthesis that makes you either uh, desire your own repression, which is to say, uh, as previously, you will not surpass your father, so as to apply the boss to your father and keep yourself uh, squared away, or you will surpass and define our forefathers, which is to go on and, and to uh, arrive at that archaic thing. So what I see happening in that um, passage uh, is that um, schizoanalysis and, and uh, additionally like the revolutionary investment, I think too, um, schizoanalysis has a way of map uh, of understanding these uh, this oscillation between the revolutionary and the reactionary investments, which comes with a way of understanding the conditions for Oedipus and allowing for a change in the conditions so as to allow Oedipus to no longer be, uh, to no longer have a potentiality. 
and therefore no longer really be real. But I'll, I'll turn it over okay. to someone else. <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like we're about on the same page there, then. That's good. <laughs> yeah, because I, I think that made sense, too, though, that you, you oscillate between um, racist and racial, right? Sherber goes from Aryan to Mongol leader. Um, I think that uh, <clears throat> uh, one of the ways of thinking about going into the past and into your uh, ancestors is to look for resources. You know, you know. I, I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's uh, on PBS. There's a, this thing about. Uh, tracing ancestries, and uh, people come in who don't know anything about their ancestries, and then the, uh, in the show, they get revealed to them what their who their ancestors were and what their stories were. And sometimes those stories are, are really amazing about what their ancestors did that no one had any idea about. And so, and so sometimes the, you know, those things that the ancestors did, if you know about them, could be resources for you to use in your own life. Yeah, and I think that brings us to like the, what you're describing would be like a kind of literary analysis, kind of, that would allow one to, to sort of uh, read those revolutionary potentials that they talk about, right? Uh, which is to, if I'm reading correctly, like for them, literary texts or literary machines and the um, the act of reading what you're doing is trying to discover a you're trying to perform uh, sorry there's a desiring production going on and one of the main thrusts of that is the consummating consuming synthesis where you arrive at so it's and that seems to be like um, kind of what Ken's describing right where if you you find this great story um, there's this so it's moment and so there's like uh it seems to be that seems to be the, for them at least uh the purpose of reading tats and and trying to figure this stuff out is not to not so much to buy into the um the master race but maybe to discover uh what the what the subjectivity being consumed and produced uh actually is so as to unfurl it so like like you know one of the, the one of the kind of the, the main messages that come out of this program uh that's on PBS about uh, heredity and uh you know your own uh, uh ancestors is what, on the one hand you have a lot of people who were Jewish that came from uh eastern europe and uh and so, you know, they track back their ancestors to one person who left uh, Eastern Europe. But, uh, but those who did not leave, you know, because of the programs carried out by the Russians, uh, the, uh, you know, the whole family, every, everyone who didn't leave it was killed. And so it's kind of like a horizon of oblivion that, that, where people go back to tr to find you know the people they're related to and there's no one left and another kind of horizon of oblivion that comes out in those programs is black history where 
on in the plantation registers, only the first name was there, not the last name. And a lot of times, no name. So just, you know, the age and uh, the age of the, uh, the slaves in the register. And so there's another uh, kind of horizon of oblivion that comes up with, uh, you know, black in America tracing their history back to slavery. Yeah, and with that, this seems like a good place to launch. Um, so I think we can safely say we've, we've finished this chapter, uh, not this chapter, this section. And so with that, why don't we move right into um, a d general discussion of this section, right, which is the um, main consummating synthesis. Uh, is there any place anybody wants to begin or has any questions about? Um, I have some notes. I can just share it into the main discussion chat if, if you guys want to go off that or we can go we can go like any way we want but um if there's no questions we can just hop right into your notes so we've got no takers uh varun do you want to um, while you're pulling them up uh where do you kind of start out in them I, I start with the connective synthesis, then go to the disjunctive, and then go to the conjunctive. But they're mostly quotes that I pulled from the text and stuff, and I, and I took some of Taylor Atkins' notes, and I, and I got some, and I, I just added some annotations to here and there. Okay, well, that's loading for me. Do you want to uh, kick off the discussion? I just, I just, I just like to mention that you know, in the next uh, chapter, there's going to be a re a recapitulation of the three syntheses. So that's kind of what that's kind of what you're you've got here is a recapitulation as well. Correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. I was, I was talking to Andrew about this. Uh, do they they do that even in the logic of sense? I mean, Deleuze mentions the three syntheses even in the logic of sense, right? Um, I'm not sure about that, but why don't we focus on the section we just finished? And if anybody wants to ask questions about the other two syntheses, or if, as they relay, which I, obviously they will, uh, we can start referencing those other pages. Does that seem fair? Yeah, I think I think we ought to just ask if there's any general questions about this whole chapter first before we go into. Uh, these quotes. Does that, anyone have anything they've got a question about in the whole chapter? I think that might mean it's time to go right into the quotes. Okay. So the first quote Varun gives us is, um, Wait a second. Okay, you start in the middle of the chapter session. So why don't we talk about stimuli are not organizers, but inductors. That seemed to be something that we um, was pretty important during this section. So if we go back to page 91, and we're looking at the text, which for me is page 91, hopefully. 
we match. Uh, Varun, where did you see the stimuli and, and the inductors here? Um, well, so I wanted to just take note of that was because I think they give a pretty clear uh, understanding of what they meant in chapter one when they talk about uh, uh, the production of fancy production, right? Now, the body without organs, it has uh, it, one thing to, to keep in mind is that it has, I think this is really key for this idea of Oedipus whispering on the body without organs right um is that the body without organs has a paranoiac function and uh, a schizophrenic miraculating function to it and i use miraculating in the schizophrenic sense because uh you know the schizophrenic has that that whole idea of, of the liberated desire desire being completely free and uh um you know as, as they say about judge schraber wanting to be in the endless bliss of life uh so it, the, the locus on the body without organs is construes both the repression and freedom. And I think that's what I wanted to uh, sort of emphasize with that quote there. Yeah, I think you're right about that, right? It's this weird sign of like, even what we were just talking about, where it's this way of asking you to repress yourself in some sense or desiring to repress yourself. But also there's this desire that can be, right? It's kind of disjunctive and there being a one or the other choice. Or you can go beyond all that. So it's a weird way of like, um, it's a weird way of Oedipus manifesting that way. So as to, um, if I understand it correctly, so as to um, connect with the body without organs and produce a kind of... Um, a kind of subjectivity. Yeah, I mean, um, and I think later when they talk about how we're going to, uh, you know, what's, what's, what's the possible escape and stuff like that, uh, this idea of having both ability, capital's ability to both be beneficial and uh, have repressing qualities to it comes in right when they talk about you know what's the real, what's where's the solution that this book is coming down to it's the fact that it, it, capital can do two things and it has two contradictions and the same thing with the body without organs it has two contradictions where uh the sort of uh revolutionary solution can occur yeah and that's uh, to to give kind of a quote once the idea that stimuli are not organizers but mere inductors Ultimately, the nature of these inductors is a matter of indifference. I think that really relates to what we're talking about, too, in the sense that it's not that, sti the, um, it's not that the stimulus is the organizing factor that, uh, you know, in the same way, right, um, if we are talking about capitalism, there's all these different stimuli that are occurring with, uh, in, in relation to desiring production, where we're able to see all this playing out, and so as to allow um, Oedipus. But if I understand correctly, with a more revolutionary investment, you could cut across that and find yourself in a different kind of delirium. Yeah, I mean, that's where this, the idea of uh, their experimentation comes in. You, know, you never know because it's everything's becoming and there's no sort of strict teleology you sort of never know 
It's a very uh, anti-Hegelian idea almost. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Um, <laughs> so are there any other thoughts on stimuli not being organizers, but inductors? One of the things that, not about that, but one of the things that stands out to me, you know, in the, like the third paragraph is this, the full body does not represent anything at all. On the contrary, races and cultures designate regions of this body. It is zones of intensities, uh, fields, and potentials. So, so the, the you know this is the non-representational aspect of you know of of Deleuze's thought coming to the fore here. Yeah, and that helps us understand the body without organs, right? Because if it has all these different thresholds, all these different zones, and we find ourselves as subjects across it, uh, it, it is so that we are, um, we understand that we're, we're moving along the body without organs and finding ourselves in the, uh, in the act of uh, consummating consumption with it. And then a lot of a lot of times the uh, the idea of the non-representational is seen as effective. That the fact that the body is pervaded by these the affect or feeling, uh, you know, not represented as concepts or whatever, but it's it's kind of a, a mass type uh, pervasion of the of the body as a singular. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that because I, I think one of the most important things about this text is it's um is that it has to be taken with actuality, right? You have to actually go out and apply these things um, to see how they're they're working. So it's not that the text is going to represent everything once you've understood the text to understand it. Like they say at the end of the, the section, right? It's about engaging with the literary machine. So as to um, so as to do something a little bit different. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a beautiful way to put it. Um, you know, in difference in repetition, one of the main things he's going to try and say is that if everything is always, if it's always a process of becoming, and. Uh, difference is what's given ontologically rather than identity. And then, you know, the things are sort of, uh, sort of uh, construed uh, abstractly with something like the Hegelian labor of the negative. But uh, what they're going to say is since you don't know that, it's, it's all about experimentation. Yeah, and I, I think that's exactly, um, I definitely agree with you and Kemp there. So maybe one thing that might be interesting, do we want to try and apply some of what we just read to um, to reality and see like, uh, or not how the book exists outside of reality, but do we want to talk about how maybe we're seeing some of this in our own lives? One thing that occurs to me is that the, you know, the body without organs for the book would be like a blank. 
I mean, I, I think one good example, I think Eldos uh, had a good video on this. I'll try and link it. But he was talking about uh, uh, the protests as seeing where desire is being almost, where, where desire has been stratified in the protests. You know, what's, what's I mean, uh, you know, because right now what we're experiencing, is, I, I think in the U.S. is almost a deterritorialization of desire that's going, when things, how, how are, you know, how's, how are, how is the axiomatizations of capital going to re-territorialize some of this stuff? Um, I think one way to think about re-territorialization, I don't know if this is a perfect example, but something like uh, Nike advertising. And like, you know, the way Nike advertising uh, might use like the hashtag Black Lives Matter uh, tag on their Instagram or something. Yeah, and... Um... Aldous, before I, before anyone else comments, since uh, he referenced your video, would you like to to say some words, maybe some sentences? Um, yeah, I can pop in uh, if you want. I've been pretty busy lately, so I feel like I I haven't been paying enough attention to this section. So I don't want to not give it enough justice. You know, you guys have read it a lot closer than I have the last little while. But I think you're hitting on an an interesting point about how sort of maybe some of these things play into deterritorialization right now that are more concrete of a way to think about it. Like, there's clearly desire in some, like, flow sense being released right now. And, like, at some point, I don't know if we've read it or not, they say, like, deterritorialization and reterritorialization. They're almost hard to tell apart at some points. And I think we're seeing that right now and that like so much stuff is changing. So many things are up in the air, but at the same time, it's, it's, it's always being um, recorded, right? It's always being kind of re-territorialized on the other side, back into something more positive. And um, right now we are right in that moment of deterritorialization where Reterritorialization hasn't happened, so we're kind of right in like this this exciting moment where like all these possibilities that Deleuze and Guattari really are trying to flesh out are kind of like living. They're active. They're in front of us. I think the reterritorialization is beginning, though, in the sense that um, not just the marketing sense that everyone mentioned. Although um, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's received emails uh, or even seen. Um, thoughts that are, you know, that, that kind of side with the protests, but don't necessarily come out and say that, or maybe the opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, I would say where you're seeing some re-territorialization is uh, there is legislation going through right now to um, try and make it more difficult, um, if I'm not mistaken, for cops to have the kind of protection that they, um, in prosecution that they currently have, which I think is a form of, um, correct me if I'm wrong, a form of re-territorialization and the appeasement of all the protests. Yeah, I would, I would think that would be a pretty, pretty clear example of deterritorialization, re-territorialization, where um, certain like deadlocks, like it, right at the beginning of the book, right, they talk about machines and and now everything it's a machine and everything it's about like these stops and starts of flows and then here they describe like what flows are it's desire right desire and flows 
they're the, the same thing. Desire is like this constant moving active element of the infrastructure that that pushes things along. And right now, like companies, when they're trying to 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 cater or or you know to make an advertisement that that plays off this stuff, it's trying to you know set up their machine in a way that they can direct that flow of desire to take advantage of it, to, to put it into a productive use, right? So, yeah, companies are the very first ones to scramble and actually be able to try to take advantage of this, just in that raw profit sense, right? Yeah, because what they're selling is not just a, a commodity. They're also, as I think we're learning in this section, they're selling a kind of subjectivity to be consumed and consummated through, at least in the... In the in terms of a socioeconomic complex, I think that's, I think that's act, I think that's pretty accurate to say that if you don't consume a product related to this, right, how much of a protester are you, hmm. or vice versa? I mean, the, the the interesting thing here is it's not one sided, right? You have both the um, you have both protesters and people who are doing other things. Who want this to end, right? Um, you know, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, that's a kind of paranoiac machine. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, but it's it's also hard because again, they say like it's hard to tell these things apart. So we we see one side as deterritorialization and the other as reterritorialization, but how much of that is like a symbolic sort of difference is something that I never quite got to the other side of with Antiodipus. I still have that question um, lingering in my mind. It's like, how, how definitive can we actually get on separating these, these two, uh, the two poles? I think it's more about trying to take things and apply the... How to say I I think it's more about taking the instances. So that, that's why I'm saying, like, yeah, the protesters have this going on. But there are people who aren't protesting who have different things going on. And as you start to do that, you can start to build the relationships to make a larger critique, or rather, to make a larger diagram of how this stuff is, um, how the different relationships have flows in between them, uh, where anti-production is, is occurring, and where different, uh, not only recordings are occurring, but also different subjectivities and different um, different machines being plugged in by different people. Yeah, and the idea of like a revolutionary subjectivity is one that I'm, I don't know, I'm, like I'm thinking about that. It sounds like a really interesting idea. I like how, how revolutionary subjectivities are being produced and whether those are authentic, considering how much they're mediated by capital and media and stuff like that. So I, I just like to mention that, uh, you know, sometimes you can see uh, live uh, helicopter footage where they're flying over the city and they're, they've got these uh, telescopic lenses and so they'll focus on one group that's doing one thing and another group that's doing other things. And, uh, you know, uh, both, both the people, and, and a lot of times the, uh, you know, the looting is going on in one place and the, and the, Protest is going on in another, but sometimes they're mixed together. And, uh, uh, but you can see, uh, 
that both of them are mass phenomena in, in the, you know, the Kennedy scent of uh, crowds in power. Uh, they're, 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 they're masses of people operating together to do different things, you know, whether it's protest or it's uh, vandalism. And so, but, but you get this kind of bird's eye view where the camera will go from one scene to the other scene and back to the other scene, and then it'll go search for another group of people who are doing something else. And so you can see that the dynamics of the crowds are very different. Yeah, and this, this is like we were talking about earlier with the body without organs having different terrains, different thresholds. Kind of like what Ken is saying, it's not static in any way. Although it looked like uh, you had something to say there. Oh, no. I mean, I could keep talking if you want. Uh, I, I think that uh, uh, Kent was making an interesting point there about sort of the two opposing sides and um, how it's it's all it's all being recorded in its own sort of sense through media and like the camera right I, I right at the very beginning when all this stuff started happening right when the target was being looted there was a video that came out of somebody beating up a woman in a wheelchair in front of the target and then everybody had a big reaction to it and then moments later the next the fuller video came out of her stabbing people shortly before <laughs> that point right and i like so much of this stuff like it's being recorded but at the same time like that recording isn't like definite it's only it's only it's only recorded like it, it only exists as so far insofar as it exists as a territorialization on that body without organs right but in a moment like this day to day that territorialization is changing so it's it is that experimentation part of like what is going to be the most effective way to keep to to funnel these desires, to put them into a machine, to put them into a productive sense. Is it going to be rioting? Is it going to be looting? Is it going to be, you know, police coming in and enforcing curfews? Is it going to be people going out and protecting their shops? Like these are all like different social machines that are all like coming together spontaneously on the body. And it's that experiment, like seeing which one is going to win out, which one is going to actually be more effective in its production, I guess. So another 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 thing another thing to think about in terms of the nihilism is that you know with coronavirus and these uh, protests or riots or whatever happening at the same time you get this these nihilistic opposites of people segregating themselves to protect themselves from the virus and then you know it goes to the opposite ex opposite extremes where people are getting together in groups to protest and completely ignoring the fact that the that may uh, uh, exacerbate the, the the action of the virus, and so you know that's an example of these nihilistic extremes that the American culture seems to produce, and is producing even more extremes right now than you know it usually does. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I find it kind of. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I really like your point too about the recording, but it's not just the physical recording; it's that. It's that either or that comes with it, right? Um, so in some ways, right, um, I think it's fair to say that there's a series of either ors that you encounter when you're watching these different videos. 
um, in, in a different way to kind of illustrate the point. Um, a friend of mine was arguing with another friend about this, and his position was, well, how is this different than like the Boston Tea Party? Right, and so then it's kind of an either or in the sense that, well, either it's the Boston Tea Party or it's something else, right? The way, the way that that recording carries forward, and at that point, you have the, um, you can almost see the protesters and the, um, in some ways the, the cops and the business owners and some, more so the cops probably, being becoming the British and the, um, the protesters becoming. Uh, the people throwing the tea off the uh, the ships, right? I mean, the the either the either or of the recording is it's more about potentials, right? I mean, the either or is more about the locus of freedom that's on the body without organs. So you know you're not stuck in this paranoid or neurotic stage of repeating the same connections. You can switch connections by choosing one of the either or, and that's how like sort of capitalism functions, right? When something like some crisis like this occurs, right, it can uh, recapitulate itself from advertisements and uh, can subsume everything inside it by going either or, oh, so we can just change this thing to just change that thing. And that's how it sort of survives in its own miraculation. Uh, one of the things that uh, people forget about the Boston Tea Party is that, you know, that was, <clears throat> that was also an example of where people had had enough with the taxation from Britain because they were taxing everything. And, um, and, and, and like, for instance, even window, you know, if you go to England, you see a whole bunch of windows that were, um, uh, bricked up. And that was because people didn't want to pay the window tax. <laughs> yeah. And that sounds like part of the pre-conscious investment to me that, um, uh, Begum is talking about in the chat where it's the sense of, um, you know, things like class and that can begin to emerge. And uh, Aldous, I apologize. I, I didn't mean to cut you off earlier. What was it you were trying to tell us? Um, I don't remember what the point was, to be totally honest. Ah, well, you've, you've disappointed my children and I. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I... I I do think though that this whole example gives us so much like to work with. Um, it is that it's a very beautifully Deleuzian example, I think because it does have that spontaneity, but at the same time, like every single side, every single ideology, everybody's trying to, to like, there's, there's all this talk about the narrative. Right. And like, I often think about like the narrative and that same idea of like recording like with a story that 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 holds up the story that that we accept to to guide our actions and yeah it's it's changing every day <laughs> like the the story that we hear every day every minute is just sort of in, uh, in flux yeah i think you're you're right about that the narrative is part of the is in some ways what's at stake for the recording, just like Varun was saying, where like uh, the schizo is able to perform genealogies of recordings so as to write um, their own recordings, right? And in the same way, I, I think it's important too that um, 
that also leads to the consummating uh, consumptive synthesis, right? Because I mean, uh, it's because of this beauty that you have both the recording and memory in the body without arms. It's because of that beauty. That, that, that it's kind of beautiful to think that it's just because of that that it has both freedom and repression potentials. Yeah, and it's from that that then you can say, and that's what it was. Or I'm sorry, so that's what it was. Well, that's when that's when the two forces almost attack each other, right? I mean, the, the third synthesis is, the way I understand this, very similar to Nietzsche's will to power, where there's the impulses, and there's sort of resolution of one impulse, and then you get a, the identity is one really small thing that's almost misunderstood as the whole process. It's things like the nuclear family and stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. You know, because there are always multiple, in for Nietzsche, there's always multiple impulses acting at once, but it's the only one that gets selected at the particular moment. Now, do you think, because um, I, I do remember the section you're talking about where it's the two, where it's attraction and repulsion. If I remember correctly, it, it's not so much the two poles that determine the subjectivity, is it's, isn't there something kind of above that? Um, although I might be, maybe it's my maybe it's my recording process that's gone haywire here. I mean, can you can you rephrase the question a bit? <laughs> I give it a shot. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the is is consummating consumptive synthesis? Does it arise from an attraction or repulse? that sort of wins over the others or is there something else that goes on it's something similar but it's 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 more of a, it's 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 more of a, i think one way to think about it is it's it's a fight between the two impulses and uh, it's sort of and then uh do they see an erotic machine yet i can't remember but uh one of one of them gets chosen Yeah, and I pulled up this section. It looks like, to me, it looks less like one of them gets chosen and more like the resolution comes from the um, celibate machine, which functions as um, the return of the repressed. The return of the repressed is a Lacanian term. I mean, it has to do with the return of the repressed, uh, repressed specifically for Lacan has to do with uh, this with this idea of displacement. But I mean, um, it's 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 what I, I think the key there is this whole idea of uh, it being retroactive. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that makes. Oh, go ahead, Altos. Oh, well, I was just gonna say, I think Freud talks about return of the repressed as far as like um, the uncanny goes in Heimlich. Yeah, I think I think you guys are right. It's not really, it's not only Lacan, but I think Lacan appropriates it for uh, dissociation. But I'm not sure. I actually need to sit down and read Lacan. That's I'm behind there. Yeah, I think there's something to do with uh, displacement for Lacan when the subject sort of displaces itself. Uh, I was yeah, reading not... here. I thought there was this. Sorry, go ahead. Nope, nope. You first. Okay. I was just. I was just reading that, um, uh, trying to tie it back into something you were saying here, um, 
talking about like flows breaking apart segregations in their auto applications capable of hallucinating history and it, it reminded me a little bit like you were saying the either or uh uh that's the disjunctive synthesis right the synthesis yes. is always going to trim me up anyways um that this comes into the whole idea of like previous revolutions and the uh the boston tea party right is this the boston tea party or is it something else and it, it reminded me a lot of uh, a photo I saw of somebody just at one of the demonstrations had brought a guillotine. And it was just like this group of people all standing around really casually, like with this guillotine. And like, you know, it was in like a shopping mall, like like strip mall. You could see like corporate signs in the background and stuff. And it was this weird moment of like where those people for that moment could almost say like, I am Robespierre, you know, like even if it, they aren't. There is that moment of like hallucinating history that's going on that I, I think, um, yeah, you can really see it in, in some of the uh, attitudes, especially among the more revolutionary types. Yeah, and you don't even have to go that far back, right? One of the big things um, that I've been hearing, and I've actually like uh, kind of made this argument too, is that it, you know it's not just the most recent act, right? Uh, you've got Trayvon Martin, you've got... Um, I just lost his name, Rodney King, the Watts riots. Uh, it's not like all this stuff gets forgotten, right? And it, you can see it out there. What One thing to tack on, too, is because you made the point about Robespierre, um, or the Robespierre effect, right? At the end of the... I don't know if you guys have, have seen um, Spike Lee's Malcolm X movie, but I think this is... If you have, you'll probably know where I'm going with this. At the end of the movie... All these different people, kids and um, adults, stand up and say, I am Malcolm X after Malcolm X has been killed. And I think in some ways it's kind of what you see um, in certain instances here is people finding these kind of, um, these different subjectivities, these different feelings that are left over um, that, that have both been recorded and are now, like Faroon said, as as things go a certain way as they have before, they're they're coming back again. The return of the repressed is um, as uh, we mentioned. Right. So so in a way like that, um, the previous events, they remain sort of as that repression that that comes back through. Um, re-recording or re-re-territorialization or something. I'd say another uh, recording, right? Because um, in each situation, different things happen. So I think it's fair to say, like, there's a way of treating these um, these riots, these protests, and that, as has been done before. But there's also, like, I think this might be the first time, at least in my life, if not the past century or so, that uh, the military has been called in. Yeah. So there's, it's not just like, um, it's not like the same thing is happening over and over. It, 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 is, it is more so that, um, like they said later on, so that's what it was, right? Is we see it again, sure. But at the same time, desiring production continues. So new recordings are being made. Yeah. New I, I, 
I, I sorry to interrupt you, but I think that the whole point about saying so that's what it was, it's not only that the fact that it's retroactive, but more importantly that it's uh, you don't pick your desire. Your desire chooses you almost. Hmm. It's a very it's a very Nietzschean transvaluation. Uh, yeah, I, w I wouldn't even say it's necessarily like your desire chooses you, but like you are the investments of your desire, those libidinal investments. Like the self is simply, it's a, it's a matter of more libidinal investments than it is someone telling you something, right? It's, it's, uh, it's how it's actually recorded. It's how it's drawn. It's how the flows actually move. Like desire in itself is, it, it doesn't tell, tell you anything. All it does is move, right? What tells you something is how that desire is, is used in a productive fashion. Yeah, and I, I think it also relates to like, so right, in some ways we're the handymen plugging in our different machines. But it's also the fact that machines have their own desires, right? And so mm -hmm. like, uh, I would say more so, I think Varun would be right in so far as like, you and how you plug in your machines is how you both give way to and interact with your different desire with desiring production both because it's not just at a personal level it's also at a a social level yeah i, I think that's where that whole really cybernetics idea comes from right that everything's almost connected to a certain degree and that's why that's why things like that's why uh that's why despite the fact that capitalist institution would uh, segregate uh, social reproduction from desiring production or something like that it's it's all still connected to each other and uh, they can both influence uh, either regime i mean i think they're drawing off a lot of like people like norbert wiener uh gregory bateson there yeah i think the the cybernetic aspect of this it's something like Nick Land makes a big deal out of, but I think a lot of people brush over it a little bit because there is so much going on in here that sometimes the like explicit cybernetic stuff can kind of fall to the side. Yeah, and I mean, even uh, his uh, if you guys have read Deleuze's essay, Postscript in Societies of Control, what he means by control there is comes from actually Norbert Wiener's understanding of control from his cybernetics. Uh, this might be kind of off track, but... Um... I just have a small question. When they talk about um, the two poles, right? The paranoia and the or par paranoia uh, segregative and schizomatic, they say racist and racial. And um, like what that distinction is, the, the anthropological parts of this book were always the ones that I got hung up on the most. So like their, their analysis of race, racial and, and race, uh, racist and racial there. I'm still not 100% done. I don't know if that'll come up more if we've already gone over that. I mean, this is what me and Matt were also trying to figure out uh, between each other when we were talking about this and even talking about it before, is uh, essentially how is it that... Uh, I don't know if this is a perfect example, right? But the, the football team that hates the other football team, how, how is it that something like that can occur? And I think what they're, the argument that they're making is that uh, Oedipalized subjectivity creates these uh, creates these divides, and uh, 
but I'm, I'm not sure exactly how to put it right, rightly in their terms, as you say, with the racial and race groups. Uh, they say racist and racial, whatever, for whatever that means. For those interested, we are on page 105 in the Penguin um, Spine-Breaking Edition. Yeah, I mean, my, my cover to the Penguin's ripped out already. Yeah, that, that right there for you folks is an example of anti-production. <laughs> but that being said, Aldous, I, I think you have a great question there, because that's what, um, like Varun said, Matt and us were talking about it. And so, um, I think... I, 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 I don't know how much I agree with Brooks's example. When Brooks brought up Lacan and his theory of, uh, I, I, I couldn't really see a relation with with uh, Lacan and Deleuze at that point. What about you guys? Uh, specifically with the racial racist thing? Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't see, I don't really see many connections with Lacan there. I, I'm not sure I recall. I, I think the problem is that uh, this term of segregation. In Lacan, you know, he was saying he couldn't find many references to, but um, but I think that the uh, toward the end, you know, it seemed like segregation meant, you know, breaking things apart into uh, different reified sets of uh, of peoples. Hmm. But I guess like. What is the difference in breaking people apart based on racist grounds, and what's the difference between breaking people apart on racialist grounds, <laughs> right? Like, I, you would think that, that you could do both, I, I would assume. Well, one of them would be the exclusive disjunction. I don't know, do you guys know the exclusive disjunction? It would be a use of that instead of an in inclusive instance where you can be either or. But an exclusive okay. use of like, like someone mentioned the football teams so, earlier, right? So it's the exclusive. That's a paranoid investment of desire. Would be the exclusive use of the disjunctive synthesis, and saying that well, this other person on the other team is like totally exclusive from me, and uh, then there's that racialized antagonism. Whereas really, it's mostly. I mean, from the desiring machine point of view. It's pretty ambiguous whether or not one team is better than another or whether one race is better. I mean, races don't even align well on biological characteristics. It's just a sort of paranoid investment of desire. But what they want to say is that it's mostly driven by some social, it's like driven by some social or economic needs. But it's that use of the exclusive disjunction, definitely. So, so racism would be the exclusive side of it, whereas racialism would be the inclusive side of it. I think so, yeah. You guys are talking about the anthropology in, like, the third chapter. That stuff can be tricky just because there's a lot of... They're referencing a lot of Levi Strauss, the jeans guy. And, uh, like, there are some other conversations about why Strauss is so, like, obsessed with exchangism. 
and he's got some own things that he's got his own ideas that are trying to preserve for structuralist anthropology but Deleuze and Qatari are kind of going to smash some of that at least when we get to that chapter I mean they're going to talk about like inscription and the socius so yeah it's like an exclusive use of the disjunction which is like a paranoid investment in desire that was really helpful thank you and and to build on that if we're oscillating between those two points that would explain the delirium right where even with like a, a football team right i am on the best team but we're all still teams right oh absolutely yeah and it's it's also it's explained i mean Deleuze and Qatari are just explaining it in terms of these two poles so it's like they're interested in only to what degree does this investment of machines or, or energy lead to like what does it do i mean this is the cybernetic aspect someone brought up earlier was that cybernetics is like you don't ask what it is or what it means you just ask what it does so when you're looking for the different machines or, you know, people might have their own verbal explanations of why they like one team over another. But really, if you look at the machines, you can have a sort of materialist explanation and it's going to be. Yeah, so your investments of desire either align on more or less schizophrenic and inclusive or paranoic and uh, sorry, and, and exclusive slip those up there but um it's very different than what lacan and freud are doing which is hmm this person likes chicago bears like how does this mean that the bears have the phallus or that how does the like the coach represent the father instead D and G are like well desire doesn't mean anything it just machines what it machines because it wants it and we can only analyze it in terms of, well, does it make the situation more, like, is it more paranoid or is it more schizophrenic? Is it making connections or is it really concerned with breaking them and preserving some sort of neurotic unity, which doesn't really exist? And of course, this will piss off Lacan to no end. <laughs> I mean, I think that's exactly what the critique of representation is in this book. The fact that it's not what something means or what something is, but rather what something does or has the potential to do with the body without organs, perhaps. And I, I think that's what, 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 as soon as we start getting into introduction to schizoanalysis, that's what they're going to start talking about. Uh, that, you know, like I, I think I think one of the best examples is when they talk about uh, Kierkegaard and uh, how they stop defining God. Like you look at uh, Kierkegaard and uh, what what they did they stopped defining god as some sort of essence right they started saying no there's the capacity to believe for god to exist and that's faith and you see a similar thing with marx and they say marx uh, with uh, adam smith and ricardo when labor was this labor as a possibility or an axiom for understanding wealth was discovered you look at the possibility to have or the potential to have wealth and that was not representationality. I think that's why they like Freud's concept of the libido so much, right? Because Freud didn't understand, didn't have any like sort of object petita or any lost object that that that, that, that uh, of a representation that something was searching for. It was just before, at least before Freud became began looking into things like the Oedipus. It was just the, the capacity to have desire, and that's libido. That is so true. Yeah, the, the critique of representation. Um, it's going to touch on Lacan, Freud, and especially Marx, because it's like, that's like a meta way of doing, like, philosophy. I mean, 
all of these systems kind of have what like a manifest versus latent dream content and that kind of aligns onto like the superstructure and base for marxism which is the idea that well there's a representation and that stuff's just not real we can ignore that and then go into well there's a more real level which is the economy or which is the unconscious investments of desire that are determined by oedipus and deleuze and Guattari are going to say like hell no like i don't believe i'm not going to trust you to this the fucking doctor to interpret what the signs mean and what the reality is instead we can look at the signs and interpret them like a genealogy written on the surface you know we don't have direct access to what it means as if it's like forget all that yeah and I, I see too where you were getting that about like um, the exclusive and inclusive where they like delivering as something like two poles, racist and racial, paranoia, segregative, and schizonomatic. So it's also to say too that the in, in the inclusive you're also able to continue on the nomadic um, path, right? So there's also it seems to be this notion of like uh, motion there where. Uh, the schizonomatic can continue moving, whereas the paranoia segregative has to stop and split. And yes, we are just about out of time, so I will open the floor for final thoughts. Well, this was a <clears throat> interesting chapter. It took us a long time to get through it. Uh, three different sessions to uh, reading it, and three different review sessions, so uh, I think we've... Uh, done good work here and I'm looking forward to the next chapter section have we cracked the schizophrenic egg <laughs> this is what you can't tell my broom and so with that thank you all for joining us for this um, final reading of section 2.5 please join us again Monday for our continued reading of section 2.6 also we will be having a movie night Friday at um, 7 p.m. PDT with a showing of David Lynch's Eraserhead. And then finally, um, Saturday, we will be discussing William Blake's The Marriage of Heaven and Hell at 12 p.m. PDT and Sunday. Simone then will continue um, at the same time, 12 p.m. PDT. So bring your friends, bring your popcorn, and uh, bring an inquisitive mind. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Love you all.